if you have your if you have your Bibles with you this morning, we've been in this series, and I pray that the series has been helping some of you. Um, it it has been helping me. I know it has, uh, as we've been working through the Word of God and and hearing about what we deserve versus what God gives us, right? And we've been hearing that in the last few weeks, and and in week four, we're going to turn to the book of John, and we're going to be in chapter 21 right there, and then again in Luke chapter 5, so if you could bookmark those in your your Bible or however you want to get there, but uh, we have a, a, a quick creepy video to show you again this morning. We skipped last week, but uh, we're going to show you this little video this morning, and um, it'll sort of intro what the topic is, uh, and God doesn't often give us what we deserve, um, but God is the God of another chance. Amen? Amen. of us can relate. There are times that we've deserved to be counted out, given up on. But God gives us another chance. Amen? So if you've found those two passages, keep your fingers on there. I want to talk to us, talk to you this morning about the God of another chance. The God of another chance. And and notice I didn't say second chances here, right? Because if we're honest, most of us would say we need way more than just a second chance. Uh, I mean, come on now. Let me get a hold of this. (laughs) The God of another chance. Some of us need a third and a fourth and a fiftieth chance with God. Uh, He's the God of another chance. He's the God of a a fresh start. Some of you need to know that this morning, that you look at your life and there's some places where, you know, you've blown it big time. You've just blown it. And you know that. And there's places where you've stumbled, places where you've failed and where you find yourself because of that feeling like a failure, feeling distant now from God. And maybe you've stopped following Him altogether. Or maybe it's just simply a matter of you've, you've come to a place in your life where you no longer believe that God could use you because of what you've done. Like, like he felt that he, you felt that He was using you at one time and he, he wanted to use you and now you just assume that things can never be the same. And today we're going to see Jesus 
appear to Peter and give Peter what we might see as something he did not deserve. The gift of another chance. And the way he does it is so profound and so unique that Peter moves on from John 21, an absolutely and totally different person. And we're going to look at John chapter 21, and I want to pick it up in the center part, as you see on the screen, because the center part of the chapter really is a set of verses that are the most well-known verses in this narrative, in this story of Jesus and his interaction with Peter. So let's pick it up in verse 15. It's on the screen. If you have it, say amen. You guys don't sound that excited to have it, but okay. We'll get there this morning, I'm, I'm hoping. Verse 15, we start, says, When they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, Feed my lambs. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him again, well, tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything there is to know. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, what's happening here? What's this interaction here between Jesus and Peter? Why the triple interrogation, Jesus? As some as they preach it, and I'm not saying it's a wrong way, and, and I've even preached it this way, uh, but I'm just saying this morning, maybe, maybe if we do dig a little deeper, we can find something different. But some as they preach it would highlight the different Greek words uh, that are used in the New Testament. Now remember, Jesus didn't speak Greek to the disciples. They would have spoken Aramaic, but John is writing to a much larger audience, and so he writes in Greek, which is the common language across the Roman Empire at this time. But as, as he tells this story, John uses different words for the word love, right? And different Greek words. So John uses two words. He uses the word agape. It's actually agapeo, but agape and phileo. Now, if agape is that divine love, that love of God, that unconditional love that, that only comes from God, agape, phileo love is brotherly love. You know, we, got, we have this city called Philadelphia, right? And that's the city of brotherly love. That's where we get that word. It's the, it's the love called phileo, that brotherly love. So if agape is divine love and phileo is that brotherly love, you know, the kind of love like you have for a, a brother or sister, but maybe not till you get to about 20 or 25 years old, right? Because until then, maybe not, maybe not. But two times Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? In other words, Jesus is saying to Peter, do you love me with that divine type of love and peter is saying jesus the best i can do is right now is love you with a brotherly love he re, he replies to him you know i phileo i brother i have this brotherly love and and peter that's the best that he can kind of come up with peter says you know what else can i say it's it's where i'm where i am right now jesus i i don't i'm not there yet and others say that peter that's one way it's preached and others would preach it that that Peter denied Jesus, this is an old, Peter denied Jesus three times, so Jesus asks him three times, does he love him? 
And the problem with that is it seems that, you know, when you take that all out of, out of, the, out of the Scripture and you read that for what it is, it seems sort of, sort of petty on Jesus' part, in my opinion, that you say you denied me three times, so now Jesus all of a sudden has to ask you three times if you love me. It just seems like unlike Jesus' way and Jesus' character to do that. Like that just because he denied him three times, and so he has to ask him three times. And that, that's sort of a disconnect in Scripture. I want to suggest to you this morning that something very different is going on here. I mean, if you come, if I come home at the end of the day, and I walk in the door, and Brenda says to me, she meets me at the door, and she says, hey, we, we, we really need to talk. And I say, sure, you know, what's going on? What's up? I just need to know if you love me. That's in a sense, Jesus kind of catches Peter off guard, and he says, hey, Peter, do you love me? So if I come in and Brenda says, I need to know, do you love me? You know, I don't, I don't, I'm like, oh, sure, of course, you know, I've been, been loving you all these years, of course I love you. And she, she gets, no, 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 I need to know, do you love me? I said, well, you know, I, 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 yeah, I fix stuff around the house, and I, you know, I provide for the family, and I do all this stuff, I've, I've shown all, I, I love you, yeah. But then she ratchets it, ratchets it up and looks me in the eye and says, do you love me? At that moment, I would know that something very deep is happening here in this conversation. It's taking us to a different place than, hey, you love me, right? <laughs> I love you. And I want to suggest to you that that's exactly what's happening here in John chapter 21. So with that as a backdrop, backdrop, let's go back to the first part of the chapter in John 21. Flip on back to verse 1, and we're going to read this. John 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Okay, so after what? After this. Well, after what? After his resurrection appearances, after his appearance to the disciples in the upper room when the doors were locked, and after his appearance to, to Thomas, who said, unless I see those nail prints, you know, we call him Doubting Thomas, right? Remember that scene? And unless I see the nail prints and the, and the, and the scar, I will not believe. Unless I see the, his hands and feet, I won't believe. After those appearances, Jesus again reveals himself to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Now that's the Sea of Galilee. He revealed himself in this way. And I've highlighted the word revealed on the screen because that's the key to chapter 21. The key to chapter 21 is the revelation of Jesus. Stay with me. You find it again in verse 14 as we walk through this book of John. Now this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So Jesus is going to reveal himself to Peter because... What Peter needs in the midst of his feelings of failure is a fresh revelation of God, of the love of God for him. Peter doesn't need a lecture. Peter doesn't need to be straightened out theologically. Peter needs a revelation of the love of Jesus, and he needs to hear again that nothing of God's purpose for Peter has changed. Along the way, in the midst of failing Jesus... Peter has forgotten something very, very important. Remember in verse 1, After this, Jesus revealed himself. Now again to the disciples by the sea. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, 
uh, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee. That would be James and John, by the way, the sons of Zebedee. And in case, you know, and if anyone in this church is searching for baby names, the Bible's always a good place to go. How would you like to see little Zebedee running around? Right? And then two others of the disciples were, were together there as well, it says. And in verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and got in the boat. But that night, to be continued. I want to point out a few things. I want, to notice, I want you to notice two things. I want you to notice the boat and I want you to notice the word night here in the scriptures. The word night is a word that John uses specifically quite often throughout his gospel narrative. And he uses the word night in a very poignant way. Whenever John is using it, whenever he's talking about nighttime, under the cover of darkness, night, there's always this undertone. There's something ominous about it. There's something dark about it. Remember when Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, rather than coming to Jesus in the daytime, he's afraid, afraid of what people will think, afraid of what people will say, and afraid to have that discussion with Jesus. Remember that he says he comes to him when? At night, in John chapter 9, throughout the narrative, Jesus says to the disciples, after he heals the man who was born blind, he says, we have to work while it's day. Why? Because the night comes when no one works. You're not able to work in the dark. You're not able to work at night. John chapter 11, Jesus says, if anyone walks at night, he stumbles. When a person's moving around at night, it's dark. Your risk of falling, your risk of stubbing your big toe is increased. At night, it's dark. And then maybe the most poignant of all is Judas. In John chapter 13, Jesus says, Whenever, whatever, you got, whatever you have to do, go and do it and do it quickly. And Judas got up from the table and left, and he, he went out, and it says this, that it was night. Not just dark outside, not just night outside the doors of that upper room that night. Hear me, church. It was dark as night in, in Judas's soul. And we use the term, the dark night of the soul. Anybody familiar with that phrase, the dark night of the soul? When you have this moment where you realize that you're nothing and God is everything and you need him, you have that moment. So when we read in this verse that it's night, John's narrative using the word night, Peter is going to stumble. Peter stumbling, Peter dealing with darkness in his soul. The light in Peter's soul has been dimmed. Peter is denied Jesus. And notice as well that it says the boat. And they said, we'll go with you. And they went out in the boat. It's interesting. Why not? So they went out and got in a boat. What's, what's the significance of the boat? In the Sea of Galilee, there would have been boats all over the place. Why not a boat? Well, it's because it's a specific boat they're getting into. Who's getting in the boat first? Participation. Who's getting in the boat? Second word in this verse. Very good. Peter, I'll help you along. It's okay. Peter is getting in the boat. So it makes sense that if Peter's going to get in a, a boat, in the boat, whose boat would it be? His. Yeah, Peter's. This is elementary stuff. You guys are doing well this morning. 
They're getting into Peter's boat. Now remember, this is the boat that Peter left. It's, it's the thing that Peter said, you know what, I'll leave all of this behind for the greater purpose and greater good of following Christ. It's that boat. It's the boat we read about in Luke chapter 5 and verse 10. It says this, And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. That's your homework. Go back and read that. From now on you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. Now Peter has gone back to that boat. Not just a boat. Peter's boat. The boat. The boat by which he made his living. The boat which he established his own identity. And, and let me just say this, that if you were to go to Capernaum and you were to look where Peter's house was, you would find that, that Peter, according to ancient tradition and excavation and things, Peter did probably quite well for himself in his little fishing enterprise. And I don't think, you know, don't think of the disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John, as being these poverty-ridden, having nothing. You know, they, they had a... Upper middle income probably did it pretty well fishing business enough so that they, they hired some people and they were providing fish for the markets and the area. Peter left all of that behind, left it all. And this is now Peter saying, you know what, I think I'm just going to go back to that. This is not a fishing trip we're reading about in John 21. This is actually Peter saying, you know what, I'm out, I quit. This, didn't, this whole thing didn't end up the way I thought it was going to. And in his guilt and in his, his, his struggle, his inner struggle, Peter decides, you know what, I'm going to go back to the boat. I mean, they met Jesus, and Jesus asked them to follow him, to be learners, to be disciples. This great rabbi, they walked with him, they saw the miracles, they heard the words, that he, and, and they expected that this Jesus would be king. In fact, they were vying for places. You can read it in the scripture. Remember, they're arguing. Who's going to be sitting with him on his right and on his left? He's going to be king, and we're involved, and this is going to be great. And then all of a sudden, instead of a throne, there's a cross. Wait a minute. The dream explodes in Peter's face. Hang on a minute. And then after Jesus dies and is resurrected, he appears, and their hope, it's going to be like the old times, right, Jesus? Only it wasn't. Jesus appears out of nowhere and just, just as quickly disappears. And I'm sure Peter is thinking, I never thought it would be like this. And he doesn't have any time to process this failure with the Lord. And, and the disciples are there. And there's no doubt that, that this sense of, of Peter's failure in denying Christ. And then he's looking around and he know, these guys all know what he did. And he knows that they know that they know he knows. You follow me? Not really. But you know how that is. When you're around people that know you failed, you think that that's all they're thinking about is that time you failed. When they're not. But it's human nature. And certainly Jesus shows up. And on one hand, Peter, you know, he's glad to see him. On the other hand, this, this, this Jesus, this encounter reminds him of what he did. He did the very thing that he had said just an hour before he wouldn't do, and Peter denied that he knew Jesus. And Peter processes this and thinks it through and says, you know what, it would probably just be better off to go back to the way things were before. Peter's just, you know what, I'm going to get back into the fishing business, and you know, 
I'm just going to go back to the way it was. And I know there are some people here this morning, and that's where you are, that whatever way, to whatever degree you think you've failed your, your fellow human beings, or that you've, more importantly, failed God, whatever degree you think that is, that, you know, that you're thinking, you know what? I've failed. Or maybe you think that God has failed you in life. He didn't do what you thought he was going to do. It didn't turn out like you planned, like you had hoped, like you had told people. Like you had thought this is how it was going to be, but now that didn't happen. The healing didn't come. The breakthrough didn't come. The business didn't succeed. The deal fell through. You're disappointed in the Lord, and now you're disappointed in yourself. And in your heart, you've already said, you know what, I'm out. I give up. I give up. You just haven't told anybody yet, but have you ever told God that, you're, you're, that you quit? You just can't do it anymore. I think many people do. They get discouraged. They get, I think of a lot of pastors I know that, that are in, in, in situations that just seem like there's, it's hopeless. And I feel my, my heart goes out to these guys and girls, these women. The, the, my heart goes out because they're in these no-win situations. And they feel like hope springs eternal when they get to, get to a new church. And, or maybe they're a new ordained pastor. And they get somewhere and, oh man, it's just the green grass. Woo! Let's win the Lord. Let's win the world for the Lord. And then things don't go as planned. And, I, and, and then you can feel like you've not only failed your fellow people, but you failed God. And you get to a place where you can't really see clearly. And you lose sight of what God has done in the past. And that past fogs your vision for the future. This is Peter. This is where Peter is. But the problem with quitting, the problem with Peter, if you notice, that they, he took other people with him when he decided he was going to quit. And that's, that's the, the, the danger. When we go back, it says that, that Simon Peter and Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana, the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. And then Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said, yeah, we're going with you. They're not going on a fishing trip either. This is, they're, they're going into business. They're going back into business. The idea of seven of them going into, into this boat, seven of them going fishing. In, in John's Gospel, again, and don't read too far into this, but in John's Gospel, he uses the number seven repeatedly. And it's the sense of completeness, the sense of fullness, the sense that all of them, the sense. So when he says that the seven are going, what he's doing is, is, is going to affect the other disciples. You know, what the seven do is going to affect, in a sense, the future of the church is what, what, that, why he uses this example in the book of John. So what Peter is going to do is going to affect these six other guys. And then what they do collectively, the whole church, the new church, is looking at them. Saying, okay, fellas, you're our leaders. You're the complete leadership of the new church that's happening here. What are you going to do when the chips are down? And Peter's saying, I'm getting back in the boat. Very careful about what you do in times when you're feeling failure, when you're feeling feeling that you, that you failed God or, or that it's for, for you it's time to move on or to leave a situation because hear me church that when you decide that invariably it affects other people you say well it's my life well it is your life but the decisions of your life the direction of your life the devotion of your life affects everyone around you 
And the tenor in which you serve God, believe God, love God, and process failure in your disappointment with God, and, and all of that will have everything to do with how those around you navigate life going forward. What you do and what, how you act matters to those around you. Think of the testimony that was shared by our brother this morning. He said, that's not what we do in our family. And it's because that starts somewhere. It starts with Bill and Dory. It starts with other couples in their family. This is not how we do this. And that affects everyone around them. Because of what you do. I talk with other pastors and leaders in the church, and at times, because of the difficulties in ministry, because of the disappointments sometimes that happen in ministry, what happens is that these well-meaning church folk um, are parents, right? And they go back and say things in their home about the church or in the Lord, and they're vocal about it and about the ministry, and and that embitters the children against that. We have to be very careful how we process these things and disappointments. Peter says, I'm going. And at stake is the entire future of the church. He doesn't know that. But all that to say, you don't know what's at stake either. You can't see the future. You don't know the plan of God. And and the scripture says that now we see through a glass darkly. We can't see the, the whole picture. You might know part of it, but you don't know all of it. Be careful with the decisions that you make. They went out and they got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing, the scripture says. And that's the time when you fish at night. You know, these guys knew that. They were fishermen. They know when to go out. But they're not catching anything. And they're thinking the thing that they could do, they can no longer do. What's, what's going on? Why, don't, why are we catching these fish? Because God has set a hand on their life, and, and God has been at work, and they've talked with God, and they've walked with God at one point, and, and they're trying to go back to the way it was. Let me tell you something, church. You can't go back to where you were because that doesn't exist anymore. Peter's trying to live in the past, which makes him feel, it makes for a terrible reality in his life. Here's Peter. He can't, they can't catch any fish. And as dawn breaks on the Sea of Galilee, and they're up there on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, and Peter's there, and and you know, the, the Sea of Galilee is not that big. Has anyone ever traveled to Israel, traveled to the the Holy Land? Have you seen the Sea of Galilee? It's not that big. It's more like a lake, a large lake, um, about six miles across, 13 miles long. And so you could pretty much see the whole area. So as they're kind of coming toward land, he would see the towns. He might see Bethsaida, where 5,000 were fed. He could definitely maybe see the Mount of Beatitudes, where Jesus delivered a masterful sermon. He could probably see Capernaum, his hometown, the place where Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead, where his mother-in-law was healed, and where the sick and demonized were brought to the door, and all who came to him were healed. He could probably see where the Roman centurion's servant was healed. He could see all of these things, and there's no doubt he's there, and he's looking at the horizon, thinking about all that Jesus did, all of those places. And in John 21, it tells us this. It says that just as day was breaking, look at verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. And yet the disciples did not know that this was Jesus. And that's so interesting. And it's so typical of the resurrected Savior, right? Remember on the road to Emmaus, Jesus was right there. And there were two guys walking with him. 
and they were heartbroken and Jesus was right there, but he didn't know that they were, they didn't know it was him. And here they're disappointed, discouraged to the point of quitting. And who's right on the shore of their life? Jesus is right there. And I don't know where you are this morning, but I do know this. In the brokenness of your situation, in the, in the, in the sense of failure and desperation in your life, you can't see him, but he's there just the same. Because the God who loved Peter, James, John, Thomas, and Nathaniel loves you as well. And the God who personally interacted with them is the God who wants to interact with you. And just the time you think you're going to go your own way and you think that he's not here anymore and he's nowhere to be found, he appears and then disappears. And can I just say that in a moment, he's on the shore of your life. In that moment, he's right there. You might not recognize him. You might not see him initially, but he is there. And then verse 5, if you look, in your, look at your Bible, Jesus said to them, and I love this, Children, do you have any fish? I mean, can you picture this? He says, oh, do you have any fish? They've been fishing all night, and you have to believe they're frustrated out of their mind because Peter's told them all the money they're going to make, and they're going to go back into business. And Peter says, you know what, guys, there's one thing I know. I don't know a lot of things, but Peter might might have said something like this. There's one thing I do know. I know how to fish. And we're going to get out there tonight, and we're going to make a big catch. And in the morning, we'll sell it in the markets, and we'll be on our way to rebuilding this business. We're going back to what we know. I'm going to cut you guys in. We're going to franchise this whole thing. It's going to be awesome. And you have to believe that Peter was talking the whole time. If you know anything about Peter, he's one that likes to talk. And you just kind of know, right? And so there they are. They're frustrated. They're tired. And all of a sudden, a person they don't know is standing on the beach a hundred yards away. And he calls out, hey! Hey, guys! They're like, what? How's the fishing going? Well, it kind of stinks, thank you very much. We haven't caught a thing. Well, i got a great idea. What's that? Verse 6. Cast the nets on the other side. And James is thinking, who's the comedian on the seashore? Where does this guy come from? And Thomas is saying, I doubt we'll be doing any of that. Somebody caught that. Thank you. Somebody got it. And John says, you know what? We're out here. You don't typically catch fish when the sun's up. But what's it going to hurt? Let's go ahead and do it. So they throw the nets And all of a sudden, the sea comes to life, and the water begins to swirl around them and teem with fish, and the nets are full to the point that they're almost ready to break. And it's in that moment that John, wonderful John, I love John, says, It's the Lord! It's the Lord! And they were not able to even hold all this quantity of fish in this verse. There's so many. And then the disciple that Jesus loved. How many know that that's John? Because after all, if you're writing your own book for the Bible, why call yourself John when you can call yourself the disciple that Jesus loved? So he does. Therefore, 
Uh, he said to Peter, uh, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. Now, basically, Peter would have been you know, stripped down to his, his skivvy so he could function on the boat. And he puts on this outer garment, even though he's got to swim, you know, 100 yards, because it would have been indecent in Jewish society for him to appear before another person without his garment on. So he goes out, puts on this outer garment, and, and jumps in the water and starts to... He, threw himself into the sea. And then the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they weren't that far. But, you know, it's so like Peter, isn't it? He jumps in, he swims, and now he's having a conversation with Jesus, and everyone's over there getting doing all the work. Peter's talking to Jesus. And it says, for they were not far off from land, about 100 yards. So what's happening here? Jesus has staged a miracle for Peter and John and James and the other disciples, because he wants to take them back to a place they've been before. He wants to take them back to that time when they met Jesus and experienced his power in such a compelling and awe-inspiring way that they couldn't imagine doing life without him. Jesus wants to remind them of that. Remember, in Luke chapter 5, it says this, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out in them and were washing the nets. And getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, here we go, that's Peter. He asked him to put out a little bit from the land. So they push out, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And Simon, and when they had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Now put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. So Simon answered, uh, We have toiled all night and took nothing. Sound familiar? But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. Now, those other partners would have been John, uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. But when Simon Peter saw, that, saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, the son of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. You see, what's happening in John chapter 21 is Jesus is taking Peter back to the place where he understood who Jesus was. It's a very similar situation, only Peter's heart is tremendously different. The moment when he met and, 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 and Jesus revealed himself to him, the revelation of Jesus was so stunning that it caused Peter at this point to change his entire life. And do you remember that moment, that moment in your life when, when you had that moment, the moment that you met Jesus, then his presence was so overwhelming. And, and, and the thought of his love for you was so amazing and overwhelming that you were willing to set everything down and follow him. Where you said, Lord, I love you so much, and I'm so taken with you and what you've done for me. Wherever you go, Lord, I'm going. And this morning, if you're feeling like 
you've disappointed God or whether he's disappointed in you. And as a result, you're feeling like you're trapped and distant from God. Let me ask you this question. What's changed? Has Jesus changed? Or have you changed? I mean, that's the problem with failure and disappointment, right? It can fog up our vision of Jesus. And what we really need in that moment is a reminder of why we got in the boat in the first place. Reminder of why we started following him in the first place. What we really need is a fresh revelation of Jesus. So Jesus shows up on this beach. He shows up on the beach of not only physically on the beach or the shores of Galilee, but he shows up on the beach of Peter's life. And he doesn't bail him out. He doesn't chastise him. He makes him breakfast. And it's really beautiful if you look at this uh, in John chapter 21 and verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire. And literally it says that they saw coals and embers on the ground. And the reason I want to bring this to your point, to your attention is that because John, John uses this phrase, a charcoal fire and embers. And it appears one other time in this phrase in the New Testament and in the Gospel of John. And, and it's used in John 18 where it says that, that as Jesus was being tried, the soldiers and the guards uh, and the servants created a fire of coals on the ground to warm themselves. And who do you think came and stood by it? Peter. Peter came and stood by it. Have you ever noticed how certain, even certain smells evoke certain memories? You know, we like to, we like to go to, uh, a certain theme park down in Orlando occasionally. And when we go there, there are certain smells around, you know, the vacations that you've been on or, or you, you go down and you smell, smell the popcorn popping or, or you go in and, and you smell that nasty water that's in the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. But it brings back memories and you think, oh, there's even a candle company that's made scents found all around the parks. And there's this nasty one that's the pirates of the caribbean water and it smells just like it but different smells that you would get in different memories and and immediately reminds you of different times in your life right and 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 scenes maybe you grew up on a farm and when you get around a farm and you smell that smell of the farm some would be like whoa what's that but you are like oh that glorious farm smell because it takes you back The memories come flooding back. I would suggest to you that this might be exactly what was happening in this situation. That Peter smelled that charcoal fire and and Jesus is letting Peter know, you know what, I don't hold your sins against you, Peter. You need not be afraid of that memory. I'm going to give you this smell that you have. It's something different. So with the fish laid out on it and the bread, Jesus said, Bring some of these fish that you've caught. And it says that there was 153 fish caught. Now, I don't know. There's been a lot of explanations on what the 153 fish, why they would say 153 fish in the scripture. And honestly, none of them really make a whole lot of sense. But the best explanation that I found was these guys were fishermen. And fishermen love stories. How big was the fish? Oh, man. 
And if a fisherman caught over 100 fish, they wouldn't say we caught about 100 fish. We caught 153 fish. There's the mystery of the 153 solved right here this morning. You're welcome. You're welcome. But John's a fisherman telling the fish story. And now Jesus says, here, come on, have breakfast. None of the disciples said, well, who are you? They knew it was Jesus now. And the conversation now makes sense if we look at it. 21.15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said, Simon, said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Okay, now what's the these, right? Do you love me more than these? What's the these? It wasn't the other disciples because the last thing the disciples needed was a who, another who loves Jesus more contest, right? He's pointing to the fish. He's pointing to the boats. And what he said to, to Peter is, he, do you love me more than your fishing business, Peter? Do you love me more than, 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 than having the things where you can control them? Do you love me more than any of this stuff, Peter? Do you love me more than having things that make you feel competent? Do you love me more than making money or making a great living? Do you love me more than understanding you know, the whys and the hows of life? If you do, then follow me. Final point in the sermon is this. Your past failure did not change my plan for your future says the Lord. Some of you said, you know what, I've messed it all up. I've messed it all up. It's all ruined. No, 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 let me tell you this. Your failure did not change God's plan for your future. You say, well, I don't know what my failure was, but I, I mean, I, I know that I've failed. I just don't know the God who's greater than failure. I don't know that, God. You say, I've lost too much time uh, I've been away too long and you don't understand, Pastor. The lost time didn't change God's plan. You say, well, you know what? I just don't feel like I can. Even in our feelings of failure and disappointment, God will meet us. And if you see anything, if you take anything from this passage, you can bring your past with you to Jesus. You can bring it with you. Oh, well, Jesus, you know that time I stood by the fire and denied you. You know, Jesus, that time that, you know, I, I, I was ready to give up. And I felt like quitting. And the failure and disappointment in my life, God, has dimmed my vision of who you are. Let me tell you something, church. The Lord of glory has come to the beach and the shore of your life. And he's calling to you. And he's come to say, listen, I have something for you. Don't stop. Don't quit. I know you say you've failed, but he's telling you, I'm giving you another chance. God is the God of another chance. Can I get an amen? God is the God of another chance. Not only a second chance, a third, but another chance. See, I've been far too long. I don't even know, I don't even know where I am with God. Let me tell you something. This morning, if you're here, he's giving you another chance. A few months ago, I received a random letter in the mail. Addressed to the church. And this random letter was 
from a prison not too far from here, a state penitentiary. And as I opened that letter and I unfolded it and I read this handwritten letter, I began to see how a life that has ended up in prison through admittedly his own wrongdoing, his own failures. I began to read this letter and the whole time I'm feeling God is doing something here. So I read this letter a little further and and this gentleman explained that he's done some things and he's regretted some things and he came to a point in his life that he found Christ in prison. And I can't imagine what his daily struggles are. And this, this letter that may have seemed like a plea, because in the letter it said, you know, and, and all of this has changed, and I'm, I'm a changed person, and he quoted some scripture, and he's reading by the, his Bible, and he goes to these Bible studies that are allotted time in the prison for him to go to, and he's really, really making an effort to walk with Christ in prison. I can't imagine this man's walk. And then at one point he says, you know what I'd really like? I'd really like a pair of shoes. A pair of tennis shoes because I have the, the prison issued boots and I have these white canvas things. But he said, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make myself a better person, both spiritually and physically. I'd like to go to the gym once in a while. And so I'd like a pair of tennis shoes. And they're, they're for sale at our commissary. And I make 40 cents an hour. It will take me a little while to earn the money for these $30 shoes. Word got out a little bit in the church, and someone in, the, in our church was so moved and said, you know what, we want to help him buy those shoes. Because I said, this letter, something is happening in this letter. This is not just another random letter. But something, God is up to something. I had never received a letter like that before or since. So we got the money together. And and one thing, I called the prison to see if this was all legitimate, right? I'm not going to be fooled, right? I'm not going to be taken. You know what I mean. You would too. So I called the prison up and I said, hey, there's this guy who wrote me this letter. And the chaplain said, well, one way to test out, because there are guys that, you know, in prison you have a lot of free, not free time, but you have a lot of time. I will never use the word free involving the sentence of prison again. You have a lot of time in prison. So he said, there's guys that sit down and go through the directory in their library and write letters all day long to organizations, to churches, to people, you know, asking for money for this or that. And I said, okay. He said, one sure way to test this is write him back. I said, okay. And if he writes back to you and you get this kind of thing going, it's more than just a guy writing a letter to a random church and sending it out. So I wrote him back couple weeks later, takes a little time, a couple weeks later, I get another letter from this guy. I read it again. I say, okay. We send him the money for the shoes. He gets the shoes. I get another letter from this guy. I can't thank you enough, blah, blah, blah. I've burned a lot of bridges. I have a lot of regret, and I'm trying to process all of this. I'm so happy that in Jesus Christ, I got another chance. This man's been incarcerated since 2015. 
He's doing four to ten. So I felt so impressed by God in this that I had him add me to his visitation list. You have to be added and approved, and it's not easy. You can't just pop into prison and see your buddy. can't do that. So he added me to his list and sent me a letter again. Hey, I added you to my list. I'm not sure whether, when, when it's going to be approved or not. So last Friday, I think it was Friday, last Friday I happened to be in that area where this state penitentiary is. I had never met this person, obviously. And I didn't know the protocol at all. So I went to the prison door and I mean, you can't bring anything with you. No cell phone, leave in the car. No nothing. And it was just as you might picture it. Long story short, I, I go into the visitation room, which is set up like a cafeteria type style room. Tables and chairs and rows of chairs. And about 40 minutes later, the door opens. There's other people meeting, other people talking. And I got to see entire families. But this is their normal. Wife, kids are there visiting dad in prison. Some are there and getting ready. I, I ran into a guy when I first got there. He greeted me as I walked in the door. I'm like, who is this guy? He obviously didn't work there or anything. Hey, how are you? Oh, did, well, yeah, what are you doing? I, well, I'm visiting someone. Oh, are you a family member? I said, no, I'm a pastor. Oh, well, God bless you. God bless you, whatever. And then he says, this, I'm getting out today. That was the day he was becoming free again. And he walked out the door. Okay. So then I go in and I see entire families meeting. And there are people there that are getting out today. And there are also people there that are there for the rest of their lives. And this man is in this prison with people that are getting out today. And lifers. And I learned very quickly that there are no freedoms in prison. So when we talk about being set free... (laughs) That's hard for this, this man to process. So the door opens and he walks out and there he is. There's the guy that I've been writing to for the past several months. And I had an opportunity, I consider it a privilege, to talk with this man one-on-one and to hear about what life is like behind bars, in prison. Now some of you in this room, and I know most of you, Some of you will have no idea what that looks like. It's the furthest thing from your life. Your life is here. Prison is, I I can't even have arms long enough. It's the furthest thing. And it was for me too. But I sat across the table from a guy who has his freedom taken away through his own choices. He He told me he's never ever, he's been in jail in prison since 2015. He's never had a visitor. Never. Not once. My heart broke when he told me that. He gets He's a part of groups that are in prison, and they come, and they come from the outside, but he doesn't know those people. His family's written him off. He's burned a lot of bridges. He's not, he, he's not, he, he's very repentant and saying, look, I deserve, you know, I, I deserve it. But one thing I shared with him, was this quote right here. Hey man, you know your past failure 
doesn't change the fact that God's got a plan for your future. And he says, I know that. He said, now being in prison since I've met Jesus, and and get your mind wrapped around this statement, being in prison, he said, I've finally found freedom. In prison! So just about the time when you think you failed, just about the time when you think there's no redemption for you, just about the time when you're ready to give up and quit, just realize that Jesus is right there standing on the shore of your life. No matter where you are. I don't care if you're here, in prison, it doesn't matter where you are. Jesus stands on the shore of your life calling to you, saying, you know what? Bring it in. Bring the boat in. Come a little closer. I have something for you. I'm here to redeem you. Show you forgiveness. Show you life everlasting. Jesus says, if you'll give me the chance. He's standing on the shore and he sees you right there. This morning, he's standing on the shore of your life and he sees you. And he says, bring it in. Bring the boat in. I know you've gone out there because you think you failed. Bring it in. I have something for you. And as we close the message, would you stand please? I present to you this morning that same opportunity of Jesus calling to you. And he said I could use his name, so pray for my new friend Jared in SCI Albion. If you ever want to go with me, I'll pick you up. It's an experience. I'm going again on Monday, tomorrow. But pray for my friend Jared. I can't imagine what his daily struggles are in, in behind bars in prison, trying to live for Christ. Do you think you have a rough time living for Christ? I can't imagine. He's shared with me a few things that he's seen. And he's seen a lot. Pray for Jared. Pray for me as I go and visit him whenever I get the opportunity. Would you bow your heads? Come to that time in the service. Where Jesus has set the stage for you. Jesus is standing on the shore of your life. And he's calling to you. And I know what that's like. I say it often because I stood where you stand. (laughs) I know what it is to have Jesus calling loud and clear and saying, hey, come on, bring it in. You know I'm here. Now's your time to come. You've gone back to things you've known or maybe you, you've never taken that step toward Him. You've been to church several times and you know about Him. And you, you, yeah, that's all well and good, but you don't know Him personally. 
This morning, as we close, with heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around, I'm going to give you that opportunity once again this morning to respond to Jesus who is calling to you. And you know that he is. He's standing on the shore and he's calling you. And he says, come to me. Come to me, I will redeem your life and I will give you life everlasting. That is available to you this morning. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you need to receive, do you need to answer him this morning? If you need to receive that everlasting life that he offers and you've never done it before in your life and you're willing to say, Jesus, I come to you this morning. I come to you, Lord, with all of my disappointments, all of my failures and all of my sin. And I give them to you and I receive your forgiveness. You died for me on a cross. I believe it. That settles it. I want to live for you, God. No one is here by accident. If that's you this morning, just slip your hand up and say, Pastor, that's me. I want to pray for you. Say, you know what, Pastor, that's me. I need Jesus and I hear him calling. And I will not leave this place without settling it with God this morning. If that's you, just slip it up. Amen. Just say, hey, Pastor, that's me. Pray for me. He will give you life everlasting. One other thing and then we'll close. I'll get you out of here. In this time of reflection and this time of of hearing Jesus' words spoken from his word to your heart, you say, Pastor, I I know Jesus, but I don't know him in the way that you've just described him in Scripture. I don't know him in the way that the Holy Spirit's revealing to him right now. And I need to be closer. I need a closer walk with Jesus. I I, I need to be following him. I need to return to the faith that I know. If that's you, I'll give you that chance. I want to I want you to slip your hand up this morning and say, "Pastor, that's me. That's me right here. I'm returning to the faith that I know." Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. God, I pray that everyone within the sound of my voice, whether here in person or listening or watching online, would realize your love for them, God. No matter what their failures have taught them, no matter what the world would say to them, and and then know that they've disappointed people and disappointed you, Lord. You are right there standing on the shore, ready to redeem our lives. Father, help us to say yes to you. Help us to acknowledge, Lord, that you are the Lord of our lives. Father, we realize that this morning. Might we not leave here, Lord, the same as we came in? Father, I pray your blessing upon your people this morning. And as we depart from this place, may we not depart from your presence. In Jesus' powerful name, amen and amen. Amen.